Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This morning I saw Dale Newell walking down the hallway with a whole, whole armload of bricks like this. And I said, I didn't know where Dale was going with these bricks, but I recognize these. Uh, I was Christian Ed Director here at one time, so I'm well acquainted with uh, these cardboard bricks. I could throw them at you, Doris, and it'd be okay. What's that? Kinder blocks. Oh, thank you, Rich. He used to work in this industry. Kinder blocks, okay? We call them bricks. Better than cinder blocks. Got it. Okay. Would you like to preach today, Rich? Come on up here. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, Rich used to work at uh, where they sold these, where we bought them. And uh, anyway, seeing this armload of bricks, it reminded me, years ago, uh, there used to be a book, a very popular book, I think it was written in the 70s by Chuck Swindoll, called Hand Me Another Brick. Any of you remember that book? And it was, it was made into a, a Bible study series for Sunday school, for an adult Sunday school elective. By the way, while I mention that, I would like to divert for a minute and just tell you that next Sunday our, our, in our Sunday school program, our classes begin and there's a list of these. They're in the narthex out here, and it's also down by the Sunday School office, a list of the various classes that we'll be offering beginning next week. So come at 9.30 to your peer group time, and then be dismissed to the classes. And there used to be a study called Hand Me Another Brick, and that was a really, that, that title always kind of stuck with me. There were two titles from back in that era that I always remember so clearly. One was Hand Me Another Brick by Charles Swindoll. The other one was by, I think it was Jill Briscoe, Here Am I, Send Aaron. <laughs> and uh, hand me another brick was Charles Swindoll's study of the book of Nehemiah. And we are beginning today a study of the book of Nehemiah. And if you stay with us throughout this study, uh, you will see why he titled this, Hand Me Another Brick. Now, I, I have to say, a friend of mine this morning, I won't name him to embarrass him, uh, but he told me that he did what he was told. He read Nehemiah chapter 1. And he told his wife, I don't know what Jim is going to get out of this preaching this morning. I'll we'll have to see what he comes up with out of this chapter. So we'll find out afterward if, uh, if there's anything worth looking at here. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to actually, for the most part, except for one week, we will be covering one chapter per week. And we're going to cover the entire book of Nehemiah. So as we do so, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we would just pause again to remember the freedom we have to come and open your word. We were reminded last week by our, our guests that were here, and we think of the ministry that they returned to Turkmenistan this week, and we, we realize how many brothers and sisters do not have this freedom today. And we just thank you that we have the freedom to open your word, to proclaim it, to share it, to announce it, to think about it, and to live by it. And so we pray today that our hearts will accept your word as your words today. In Christ's name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 1, and it begins, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, or Shushan, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, of course, we want to just have a little background here so you can kind of put this in historical perspective where this belongs in God's plan of redemption history and salvation. And I would like you just to go to the very last verse of uh, chapter 1 where he says here that I was cupbearer to the king. So let's talk about Nehemiah for a minute. Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts. Anytime you see the end of a Bible name with an A-H, it's short for Yahweh, Yah. So it means Jehovah or Yahweh comforts. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah, anything with an A-H has something to do with God. And his name means the Lord comforts. And we're going to find Nehemiah to be an energetic leader who combines a deep trust in God Precise planning, careful organization, discreet but energetic action. Cupbearer to the king. Now, what was Nehemiah doing in Sushan? So I'd like to, Cliff, you can put the first um, uh, map up there for me, just to give you a little historical perspective. Am I in? I'm uh, sorry. Uh, Sushan uh, is over here in north of the Persian Gulf. And the brothers that have come, have come all the way from here. They were kind of nervous. They were kind of shaking as they went. All the way from Jerusalem. That was a hard trip. It's dangerous, you know. So these guys came all the way from Jerusalem to Sushan, where Nehemiah was. Leave that map up just a minute, Cliff. And what's, what's going on there is, in the close, this, this book of Nehemiah, along with Ezra and Esther, are really the last historically the end of the Old Testament. The book of Esther that we studied some years ago together, and I know many of you love, it takes place during the same time, during the Persian Empire. And it's during this time that when when these books close, Esther, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, when they close, we are at the close of Old Testament history. And we then have what we call the 400 years between the Old and New Testament. So even though they are placed before the book of Psalms, this is the end of Old Testament history. In 586 B.C., the, the Jews were taken from Palestine, and they were taken all the way to Babylonia. You can see Babylon, the map there, in Babylonia. And they were taken there as captives. And there was a smattering of people left in Judea. The temple was destroyed. It was ransacked. And the articles and the gold and everything else was taken and stolen by the Babylonians. They brought the Babylonians and most of the Jewish remnant that was left brought them all the way to Babylon where most of them stayed for the rest of their lives. And in fact, up to New Testament times, we find a huge flourishing Jewish community in Babylon. But as the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire, we know that as we read the book of Ezra, that the king decided, the king of Babylon, or Persia, the Persian king decided that all those Jews who wanted to could go back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple and establish themselves in Jerusalem. The majority of Jews chose not to go. Life was good in Persia. They actually were, were faring well. The Persian king was actually quite kind to them. Um, they, had, they had grown in their communities and their commerce and in their even political uh, advancement. And even though they were a captive people, life was pretty good in Persia. And most of them chose not to go back. 
But about 50,000 went back with a man named Zerubbabel. And he went back, and Ezra was the key leader later in this group. They went back to Israel, and they began to rebuild the temple. And so this is the context. Now, Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. Now, of course, you know what that means right away. It means he was the guy who tasted the cup. Because, you know, one thing about being a king, you know, we don't live in that kind of society. But in societies that have kings, that have monarchies, kings and queens, one thing about those people, they're always looking over their shoulder because somebody's always out for their empire. I mean, look at the history. Look at the English history. Look at the French, the German, the Russian, and then then in the Bible history, how many of them were killed by family members? How many of them were killed by people in their court? How many vice kings, you know, vice principal presidents or so on, uh, killed the kings? And it was a constant watching your shoulder to see who was going to after you take your, to take your kingship. And, of course, what they would do is they would have a man who would taste the cup, taste the food to make sure that it was okay for the king to eat. He tasted it. It was poison. He died. The king probably wouldn't drink it. Okay? <laughs> that was the idea. But, however, the cupbearer really became much more important than that. He really became sort of the administrative assistant to the king. He really got to the point where he sort of controlled who came and went even. He was very important. Uh, we have some writings from history about this. Um, we are told in one of the books that between the, some of the Jewish books that were written between the, the, the Testaments, Tobit mentions a man named Akahar who was cupbearer. And he was in charge of the administration of the accounts for the king had appointed him second to himself. He was the cupbearer. But he was much more than that. If you wanted an audience to the king, oftentimes you had to get by the cupbearer. He became the confidant. He became the personal assistant to the king. And the king had to trust him completely because we know there were accounts from history. And I could read you another one from that, from, from literature from that time where the cupbearer was responsible for the death of the king because he sold himself out to the king's enemies. And, of course, he would be the first line of defense that you could kill the king. So Nehemiah's job as a Jew in Persia, as a captive person, had really risen to the, to the height, really, of power and prestige and luxury. This was, a, this was the Winter Palace. It's north of the Persian Gulf. Um, put the air slide up, uh, Cliff, just so you kind of get a little perspective. This is modern-day Iran today. And so if you think of modern-day Iran today and Iraq over here, Turkmenistan over here, Afghanistan, uh, we would be up in this area here, the area of Susha, very close to the Iraqi border, Saudi Arabia down here. This is the area, thanks, Cliff, where he was. And this is where he lived in luxury and in power and prestige. And what's happened is his brothers have come to him. If you look here and, and he says, and actually, incidentally, this one brother might actually be a real brother. We don't know for sure. It could be like I addressed some of you as, you know, brother, brother Rich, you know, you know what I'm talking about. But this may have been a real brother. He shows up later on. And uh, this actually may have been Nehemiah's brother. And Nehemiah says to them, how goes it? How goes it really in, in verse two? Um, I question them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem, this word remnant here is an important word in this first section. It has the idea of those who have survived, who have, who have lasted through some type of difficulty and they're the last ones left. 
But he's talking here about those remnant from Babylon who had gone back to rebuild the temple. And he's quite interested in this. How does it go? How's the project going? Is the temple built? Are they safe? Um, are, are things going well? Remember, these people, are, even though captive people, they are thinking in terms of the coming kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, that the Lord would return, the Messiah would return, and they would have their kingdom, and they would get Jerusalem back. And here they have, they have a leader, they have a governor, Zerubbabel. They actually have a high priest. His name is Joshua. You can read about this in Zechariah and in Ezra. And they've gone back, and they are rebuilding the temple, and it's good except the word they bring in verse 3. Those who have survived the exile and are back in the province, they're in great trouble and disgrace. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, to get a little perspective on that, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 1, you're right at the end of Ezra. Go back in Ezra to chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4, incidentally, in in the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. It's sort of part one and part two. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Ezra chapter four, you will see as they're rebuilding the temple, if you have an NIV, like mine says, opposition to the rebuilding. And you'll see that they are, they are the locals, the people who are still there in Judea, the non-Jewish people, they are not very excited about seeing this temple go up again. This is the last thing they want. If you look at verse 12, they write a letter back to King Artaxerxes the Persian king. And they write a letter saying, the king should know that the Jews who came up from us, whom you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, they are restoring the walls, repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. And he goes on to say, if you find those records and find out that, that this is the history of these people, they're trying, the locals are trying to get a stop to the Jews rebuilding the temple. And the king replies in chapter 4 and basically agrees to them and says, stop the work. So the work of the temple comes to a dead stop. It's half rebuilt. The walls are destroyed. The people there are at the mercy of their enemies. They have no protection. It's turned into a very dangerous, discouraging situation. And so back in Nehemiah chapter 1, what's happened is these these men have come to Sushan, where where the king lives, obviously knowing that Nehemiah, a fellow Jew, maybe an actual brother to Hananiah, that he has a place of authority and maybe he could do something. Hananiah's name means the Lord is gracious. And so we go to verse 5. And we look at Nehemiah's response. Well, really look at verse 4, I'm sorry. When I heard these things, when I heard what had happened, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now I want to stop right there and I want you to notice Nehemiah's response. When Nehemiah hears this report, he does what so many of the great men and women in the Bible do. He mourns and he takes personal involvement and personal responsibility. And what Nehemiah we're going to look at here is he goes into a prayer to God on behalf of what's happening 
in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is a man who is a global believer, if you will. Here is a man who has every reason in the world to say, wow, that's, that's too bad, but you know, that's politics. You know? Yeah, I know the king. I know this happened. It's, it's too bad. He has every reason in the world, if he wants, to not get involved. He's living in luxury. He's living in wealth. He has power. He could risk everything, just as Esther risked everything, to even approach the king. You do not approach the king of Persia. You do not approach him with things that could upset him. Because even though you're the cupbearer, your life and your ministry, your role could be ended in a heartbeat. But I want you to notice Nehemiah's response. He has a connection with Jerusalem. You know, the psalmist said, Oh, Jerusalem, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, uh, you know, if I forget thee before anything, uh, it, it would be a terrible thing. They sat down, they wept when they were in Babylon, they hung their harps when they said, Play us the songs of Jerusalem. And they hung their harps and said, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a man who was connected with God's work. He had a global mentality of what was going on. He was concerned. He was so concerned that you'll notice that he sat down and he wept. And in the Hebrew language, and in the Middle East, you know, you've seen men weeping is much more than, than we might do in our culture where we kind of wipe a tear or something. It's weeping. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, it was wailing over Jerusalem. And Nehemiah sat down and he wept. He cried. He literally cried and wept and maybe wailed. And he did this for several days. And he mourned and he fasted. And he prayed before the God of heaven. He was so connected with what was happening and so concerned with what was happening with God's people thousands of miles away. And in that world, and in that world, that was a long way away. It was months' journey to get there. These men had traveled a long time, the Fertile Crescent from Palestine to Persia. They had traveled a long way. Nehemiah has a global understanding of what God is doing and of God's work. And I want you to notice his prayer. This is chapter 1. Chapter 1, really, nothing really happens in terms of solving the problem. But something really important happens. This past week when I was coming to work one day, I was listening to the radio and the announcer on NPR, I think it was, said, Today is National Read-A-Book Day. You read a book in a day, so, you know, <laughs> National Read-A-Book Day. Maybe you start a book. But then she said, but I also heard that it's National Procrastination Day. <laughs> so you can put it off if you want. <laughs> well, Nehemiah is not going to put this off. Nehemiah is not going to procrastinate. Nehemiah hears this report, and he goes before God. And his heart is focused to the, to the west and to the south, to Jerusalem, with what's happening to his people. And he goes on his knees and he goes in his chamber and he prays to God. And let's look at this beautiful prayer of Nehemiah, verse 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive. And your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. 
We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, and the Hebrew here is that Moses has said, if the people are at the extremities of heaven, of the universe, if they are at the extremities of heaven, as far away, I will gather them from there, bring them to the place I have chosen, Jerusalem, as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Nehemiah was a man who had a global understanding of what God was doing. It was not just about him and his family and his location. There's something worldwide going on. There's something important happening in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's heart is there. Nehemiah, along with being a man who had a global understanding of what God was doing, was a man of prayer. You will see in the book of Nehemiah at least nine prayers that we'll find. I think we'll find 13 times we'll find him praying. We'll find nine of his prayers in these chapters of Nehemiah. He is a man who prays deeply. And look at his prayer. Don't you love this prayer? You know, his, his prayer could have gone right to the point and say, God... They're in trouble. Let's do something. But look at Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer was sacrificial. It was confident. And it was persistent. Listen, friends, there is an urgent need. These people are in danger. It's going to take a long time to get back there. Lives are at risk. The temple project is at risk. Their enemies surround them. The walls are down. They have no protection. This is urgent. Yet look what he does. He spends time in prayer. In fact, if you, just, if you jump ahead to next week, chapter 2, in the month of Nisan. Do you recognize Nisan? That is when they left Egypt. That is when Passover in. When is Passover generally in our calendar? But what month? April. Late March to April. Kislev is September to October. It's like later this month. And so he begins this in September, early October, and it's not until April that something happens. It's urgent. Yet Nehemiah realizes if anything is going to happen, it's going to have to be God. And Nehemiah, I'm sure, spent these months in prayer every day praying before God. And his prayers were probably along the lines of this prayer. You look at his prayers here. And one thing you have to notice when you, how, how he prays like this is that Nehemiah knows the word of God. You notice that? You notice that his prayer is based on the history of God's word. It's based on the history of Israel's failure to obey the law, to obey God, to love God. And it's also based on the promises that come from the Old Testament, going back to Moses, he knew what Moses said. He knew the word of God. To, to, to pray effectively like that, you know, the more you know God's word, the more powerful your prayer life can be when you, when you call upon God's word and God's promises to you and to your family and to your church and to your community. 
when you know God's promises and God's word, and he knew God's word. And I want you to notice the solidarity that Nehemiah has with his people. Do you notice he says, God, I know these people have sinned. I understand that. But please do something. No, what does he say? Huh? It's okay, you can talk. What's he say? What does he say? Who sinned? Me. I've sinned. My family has sinned. My father's house has sinned. He, he understands. He is part of this. He understands that he is a historical part. Maybe he is referring, maybe in his own personal life, maybe he hasn't been as faithful to God as he should have been. Maybe, I don't know. But he says here, I've sinned. At least he, noticed, he acknowledges his imperfections and, and the fact that it's not just them, it's us. I have sinned. My father's house has sinned. But God, you promise that even if we have done this, if we return to you, you promised, no matter how deep that sin is, if we return, even though you have scattered us to the extremities of the heavens, as it were, you will be faithful to your word and bring us back. God, I am calling upon your promise. I am asking you, does, does God need to be rem- reminded of his promises? You know, we think about this when we pray, don't we? Why do you pray about, why do we pray for Jerry's dad today? When God already knows what's going to happen with your dad, Jerry. Why do we pray about that? Why do we pray for the things that are in our bulletin? Why do we pray for our children this week? We, you know, next week we're going to know what God already knows. But God has asked us to pray. It's the fellowship. It's the same reason your children talk to you and your grandchildren talk to you. It's an acknowledgement. It's a relationship. And God has asked us to pray. And the Bible says, listen, you don't have to understand and figure it out. The Bible says that the prayers of the righteous man, what? Availeth much in the King James. It affects much. God answers prayer and responds to prayer, even though he is a sovereign God and everything happens according to his plan. Nehemiah prays, and he reminds God of his promise and of his word. He knows God's word. One of our classes that we're going to offer to you, as you look over this list of, of, of classes here, among others, we're going to offer you a class on memorizing God's word. Every class in here has something to do with God's word. Know God's word. Pray God's word. Nehemiah knew it, and he prayed it, and he asked God to honor his promises and to bring his people back. And then finally, I want you to notice what Nehemiah says. Verse 11. Oh, Lord, you have to read between the lines here. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today. It takes months. But it doesn't matter. He's asking for God to respond today. Has that ever happened to you? You ever prayed to God for something to happen today and you're still waiting? Should you quit asking? Do you quit asking? Of course not. God is sovereign. God wants us to pray. And he says, today, Lord, give your, give your servants success in the favor, in the presence of this man. Well, this man is the king. He's going to do something very dangerous. He's going to go before the king of Persia. 
and make a bold request. And the king of Persia could so easily say, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? He could have his head removed just like that. And no one would ever ask a question. He says, God, give, give your servant success in the presence of this man today. And next week, we're going to look at chapter 2. And it's going to be in the month of Nisan, something happens. Listen, friends, there's a wonderful application here for us. Nehemiah was a, a global man. And I want to encourage you today. Do we have a global concern do we have a global concern? You know, I, have a, I have a map of the Eastern Hemisphere behind me because so much of the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world is taking place in that hemisphere today. We have the globe that is slowly turning up here, and this is up here today because it's looking forward to our missions conference next month. If you're visiting our church, our church is deeply committed to worldwide missions. And I ask you today, do you see yourself as something much bigger than what we have right here? Do we have that solidarity with brothers and sisters around the world? Last week, um, we had our friends from Turkmenistan, Natasha, or not, Kamish and Murat. Got it this time. I had them come up and just share. They shared at WMF. They've, we had some time with them over at Sage's house. Here are brothers and sisters. And, and since last week, I was given another email that Sherwood forwarded me of more people who have been, who have been taken to be questioned to be uh, interrogated. They told us about a pastor who's in jail and to pray for this pastor who's just simply doing what I'm, what I'm doing, preaching the word and trying to shepherd a flock, and he's in jail. Our, our friends, uh, the Petersons, I've talked with them in their time in Nigeria and just talking to Gretchen last week about one of the, the children that wrote to her and talked about a church over there that was bombed instead of our church. Listen, friends, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are in great need today. We have mission work that is great work that is going on. And I want to encourage you today. Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's be global believers. Talking to Kim this morning, I, I knew Keith was gone because he didn't answer my phone call, which he always does. He's in Nicaragua. What's the organization? What's it called, Kim? He's Acnos? Acros International. And one of his partners has founded this work. And it's a... It's a work in, in Central America, and they're doing what? They purchase land. They train farmers to work it and give them the opportunity to purchase it back. And these, he and a couple of his lawyer partners have gone down there this week for a, a long trip to do this. Uh, Gablers are with us today. Where are you guys? Gablers are with us today. We had a group go down to Bolivia. When they, were, they, they gave up their life in South Carolina to go back to South America to build that camp. And a team from our church got to join them. Vic is with us today. Where are you, Vic? There he is, Vic, who our friend from the Philippines. Uh, pray for his wife. She's, she's, she's back in the Philippines still because of her surgery. Uh, we had so much wonderful time with Vic and Ellen when we were in the Philippines. And, and, the, and the privilege to see that ministry in the Philippines. And we went on to Indonesia. Listen, friends, I want to encourage you today. I want to give you a challenge. There has never been a generation in the history of the Christian church. Never. As bad as we think everything is today, there's some good things going on. There has never been a generation that is able to know as much 
about what is happening in the Christian world and in the ministry world today than, than ever before. Every one of us. And we, have a, we are global believers. Are you taking advantage of that? Are you making yourself aware of what's happening in the world? There are, there are periodicals like Christianity Today. You can get it online. That every, every month has articles about what's happening in the world. I got a new magazine for a ministry in Southeast Asia that a, the, the minister from um, uh, Johannan, I believe his name is, from, from India. We have our TCM and our GMI newsletters. We have, you, you have opportunity to, to know. We had Voice of the Martyrs who have shared here in our church. We had our friends from Turkmenistan last week. We have more opportunity to be in touch instantly with prayer needs, with communication, with personal greetings and personal encouragements than any generation in the history of the church. And I'd like to encourage you to be a Nehemiah and take up that challenge and have a burden, have a concern about more than just us here. This is important. Our church is important. Our ministry is important. We are part of something much bigger. In fact, I want to give you a challenge. This is the start of our church new year. You know, we're biblical. You know, the Jews have two new years. They have the civil new year and the religious new year. You know, the first of months is Nisan. But the Jewish New Year is later this month. We have our church calendar. It starts September. Our new church year starts. And we have our new year in January. I'd like to encourage you, for this new church year, why don't you adopt? How about your family? The parents you're here with kids. Why don't you adopt a field? Why don't you adopt a country? Why don't you adopt a certain location and get to know about those. Share with your children and grandchildren. And pray specifically for them. For this year, encourage them. Maybe write, there's, if you need help with this, talk to me and talk to, talk to Petersons about Nigeria. We'll put you in touch. We'll help you. There are ways you could do this. And you could adopt a, 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 an international ministry, a family, a pastor, a ministry of persecuted Christians like sages have gotten so involved with, with this dear family. God put this on your heart. Why don't this year, why don't you do that? And be like Nehemiah. And why don't we pray like Nehemiah? Why don't we become a praying people like Nehemiah and acknowledge as much as we'd like to rush into action and do something for the world that we have to depend on God? And why don't we pray before God like Nehemiah? Let's acknowledge our part in God. Let's acknowledge even our, our sinfulness and our, our lack of stewardship. And let's acknowledge what, what, we, what, we, that, that what God could do. We are part of this. And let's pray. And let's pray that God will use us and God will use his people to change hearts, to change nations, to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what is going to change the world. That is what is going to change hearts, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it a habit to pray. Last week, Gary encouraged you to read the Bible, and he encouraged you, if you have trouble reading a big chunk of the Bible, read a small part, but do it every day. And you know, the same with prayer life. Sure, we'd all like to spend hours and hours in prayer. I know our heart is there. But the reality is, if you're not able to do that and you get discouraged and you put it off, spend a little bit of time in prayer. It'd be much better to spend a little bit of time every day than a lot of time when it happens sometime because it's not going to happen. Pray to God regularly. Make it a habit with your family. Parents, pray with your children. 
Fathers, pray with your children audibly, daily. Pray with your family. And let's be a people who are involved. Listen, friends. If God puts a person, a ministry, a country, a family on your heart, there's a reason he's done that. It may not be in the heart of the person next to you, but God has put it on your heart. Then be like Nehemiah. Don't procrastinate. In fact, you know what? The announcer was wrong. She was wrong, actually. I looked it up. It's on the Internet, so you know it's true. (laughs) September 6th actually was the day to fight procrastination. Procrastination week is in March or April. It's true. (laughs) It has to be true. September 6th is your birthday. Well, Norm, (laughs) it's good for you. (laughs) Fight procrastination. Listen, friends, do it today. Do it today. Be a global believer. Be a believer who prays. And be a believer who gets involved. What a wonderful opportunity we have today to be Nehemiahs and to see God use us in this community, in this church family, in Puget Sound, the United States of America, in the western and eastern and southern and northern parts of our globe to be a part of his great work. Don't put it off. If God puts it on your heart, respond and do something. Okay? I want to invite you to come back as we continue our study. Invite a friend to come and join us for our study of Nehemiah and for our time of worship. It was interesting to me. I had a little personal stake in this this week. As I was studying Nehemiah, I decided to uh, just get out my Hebrew Bible and just read through it. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I can verbalize it. And I was reading through it, and I know some of the words. And all of a sudden, something kind of caught my eye. It's a little selfish here, but I, you know, many of you know, of course, my name's Shemaria. My father was Jewish, and it's a name that's Shemaria, means Jehovah something, and it means guarded or kept by Jehovah. It's from the word Shemar. And as I was reading this, all of a sudden it jumped out at me four times that name is in here. O Lord God of heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps Shemar, his covenant. For those who love him and obey, and the word there is keep, who Shemar, his commands. We have not Shemar the commands. We have not kept the commands. But you promised, if you return to me and Shemar, keep my commands, I will bring you back. It just kind of struck me. I had a little personal stake in this chapter this week. And I want to encourage you today, friends. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and maybe you feel like you've let the Lord down, maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord, maybe you feel like I just haven't really served the way I could and so on, I want to remind you that God's promise, we believe at our church in eternal security, We believe you will be saved if if you've been changed, if your heart's been changed, you receive Christ the Savior. But I want to remind you, you've been forgiven. And I think that promise is true today. 
Don't ever be intimidated or fearful of serving God because of what's happened in the past. If you need to return to God, return with the confidence that Nehemiah requested. God, you promised. If we return and shamar, if we obey and keep your commands, you will bless us. And I encourage you today, friend, return if you need to and serve the Lord with joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for these wonderful people that have come today. They've lifted their voices. They've given their time. Lord, every one of them could be somewhere else on this, this, this day. Thank you for the parents who have come today and brought their children with them. Father, we thank you for the privilege of teaching them and, and bringing your word to them. Bless these families, Lord. Bless them in the week to come as, as moms and dads lead their families and, and live Christ before them. And Lord, as a congregation, we acknowledge that we have our weaknesses and we have our faults. And Father, we acknowledge today that you want to use us and we come to you as your people and ask for your blessing for your name's sake upon our ministries in this new church year that we might reach many with the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow them to grow in him and to serve you. To that end, we give ourselves to you. In Christ's wonderful name, all God's people can say it together. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Amen.